I don't see the Chinese regulators allowing ByteDance to, to sell or to spin out a U.S. subsidiary. Right. Do we know anyone that has, you know, a loose $50 billion or so and an interest in purchasing social media companies yeah. and desire to please the Chinese government? Well, uh, the, the, is there? Right. I mean, I think the problem for, yes, there's a guy, but I think he's kind of, he's a little... The funniest possible outcome. He's busy? Uh, shame. He's a little busy. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Moderated Content's weekly news update from the world of trust and safety with myself, Evelyn Dueck, and Alex Stamos is back this week. A welcome back, Alex. Yeah, thanks, Evelyn. I think you and Rihanna did a fantastic job. I think I should probably just retire. I oh, yeah. off the microphone. Uh, it's, it's hard to live up to Rihanna. It's true, but we did miss you when we had to say the Twitter files. Oh, right. Yes. So, um, but you did find the one person in Stanford who talks faster than I do, right? <laughs> like the two of you together is like, I, I, had, to, I had to drag it down. It's the first time I had to go sub one X on my uh, podcast player. We're just training our audiences to, you know, be uh, the, you know, to have a competitive advantage in this new information age. That is the, the goal of this product. So <laughs> you're welcome, audiences. Uh, this is a two for one. Uh, for those who don't know, I teach a class with Rihanna and that is the feedback we have gone is like, wow, we thought Professor Stamos was a really fast lecturer on Monday. And then Professor Pfefferkorn came on stage. <laughs> yeah. They, you can ask me to guest lecture if you want right. to, to look good by comparison. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> okay. So the big story this week is our TikTok, TikTok. Things have just kept heating up. So in only the last week since we recorded, the Justice Department is investigating the surveillance of American citizens, including journalists who cover the tech industry by ByteDance uh, that, that owns TikTok. And then, of course, uh, the, the bigger story is that the Biden administration is pushing for a sale of the app, right. um, suggesting that it doesn't have faith in Project Texas and the CFIUS uh, process uh, to adequately address the national security concerns. So Yes. Thoughts, thoughts and prayers for Oracle, <laughs> who are not going to get their $1.5 billion to do something that is effectively impossible. To, yeah. to write a content moderation checklist and, and go, doing great, guys. Keep it up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we have we have talked about this a lot. It's uh, it's kind of wild to, to feel like we are, you know, entered a time machine and back to where we were um, when President Trump was trying to ban TikTok. But it's basically, you know, the same policy position that we have ended up with, it seems like. What are your thoughts on this, Alex? What What's new here? Well, it's, it's all coming to a head. Yes, this started with President Trump. You and I have talked about TikTok. You know, it's both being, there are really legitimate concerns here. You know, of the three, uh, there's the possibility of tweaking the algorithm to manipulate people. Definitely a possibility. There's some evidence that they have highlighted stuff. There's not good evidence of that being done in a lot of political ways, but certainly in like some really embarrassing things, like they downgrade people who they think are overweight, like not cool. There's direct censorship of which we have a couple of examples of people who are anti-PRC and such uh, having their content taken down. But for me, by far the most concerning thing here has been the data access issue of the amount of data any social media company has and the fact that it was pretty clear that Chinese employees had access to that, and that was proven through this case where they investigated a U.S. journalist and tried to track her to see if she was meeting with TikTok employees, um, which seems to be the, the source of the FBI investigation. Have you? So this is an interesting question: is like what what is the crime that they're possibly investigating? Perhaps this is under like a broader. I guess it's not FARA, but some kind of foreign surveillance because, you know, they, they have an ECBA SCA responsibility around content. But my understanding is that generally does not cover things like IP addresses and physical location, um, which I think is a real 
problem. Yeah, that's terrifying. Um, right. <laughs> and I think points to really what, you know, it'll be interesting to see. It should be a crime, right? It should be crime for Chinese employees to go investigate U.S. journalists because, you know, in this case, there's no evidence that these these folks are doing so on behalf of the the People's Republic or the Chinese Communist Party. But functionally, it'd be exactly the same, right? Is that the MSS would show up and say the Ministry of State Security and say, hey, we want to know about this American. Uh, and employees would go, you know, people talk about like it's being dumped to the Chinese government and such. That's We actually know this pretty well because it's documented other companies. You effectively just have MSS representatives who are embedded in the org who can then ask the employees to do queries and such, right? And so the fact that we don't have a law that directly speaks to that, I think is one of the things that this demonstrates, right? So it'll be interesting to see if DOJ can kind of like invent something. And, you know, I know federal prosecutors are famously inventive about using incredibly broad laws and applying them to new things, but there's certainly, I do not know of anything that directly applies here. Do you? No, I haven't, I haven't read what the, uh, what the crime is. No. Yeah. And I don't think they announced it because there's no indictment. There's no, there's no affidavit or complaint. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's all coming to a head. The Biden administration has given up on project Texas. TikTok has been on this tour, uh, and they've, they did, they've done a bunch of talks in front of semi-public audiences of, of speakers and such. So some of our people uh, went to an event they held and were impressed by the quality of the slides. But in our discussion afterwards, you know, nothing changed in our opinion on, is this actually a practical way to try to prevent this kind of surveillance? And so I think what Biden is pushing for is the only reasonable outcome that allows TikTok to exist and for U.S. citizens to use it, while also ameliorating the concerns, not just the U.S., but internationally. Because we got to remember, TikTok is the product for everybody except inside the PRC. So anything they do for America, they're probably doing for the entire world, right? Unless they do something really complicated. Now, I think this will actually be, this is a situation that could be financially beneficial to ByteDance, because there's no reason why you can't allow ByteDance to own 30, 40%, 49% of the final public company as long as they have limited voting rights and and you could build that into their shares. So you could have ByteDance economically benefit from the spin out. And it's quite possible that a US listed TikTok public American company will have a much greater valuation than what ByteDance has traded in China for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, for the difficulties of, of trade trade stocks and such and the fact that, you know, Chinese currency is not fully convertible, stuff like that. But also because they'll be maybe be able to get back into India, right? And so, you know, I, I think like financially, this would make a lot of sense for ByteDance, but it makes no sense for the PRC, right? And I think that's where this is going to hit the wall is I, I don't see the Chinese regulators allowing ByteDance to to sell or to spin out a U.S. subsidiary. Right. Do we know anyone that has, you know, a loose $50 billion or so and an interest in purchasing social media companies uh, and a desire to please the Chinese government? Well, uh, the, the, there. Right. I mean, I think the problem for, yes, there's a guy, but I think he's kind of, he's a little- The funniest possible outcome. He's busy? That's uh, shame. He's a little busy. Well, he's already talking about like buying Silicon Valley Bank, which is, you know, of all the people to reestablish trust in the banking system, that one, like just everybody just let that one fall on the floor. But I think TikTok's worth way more than- than Twitter, right? Uh, TikTok would be at current like size. It looks like they have a hundred. You know, one of the news stories is the you know the CEO of TikTok, Xiao Chu, is going to testify in front of House Energy and Commerce on Thursday. And some of the things that's leaked out is like they're going to talk about how there's 150 million American users of TikTok. So if, if they're looking at like one and a half or so billion. MAUs globally and 150 million Americans and, and equivalent penetration in Europe, 
you know, this is a 250 to 300 to 400 billion dollar company, which is why I think like there's a lot of value to ByteDance that could be unlocked here. But what is economically in the benefit of ByteDance is not what's in the benefit of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, I love that as a comm strategy, by the way. Oh, no, we're going to go to Congress and tell them that we are way more integrated in your society than you even thought uh, when you were worried. Right. If you were worried before, let me tell you, it's 50 percent more users uh, than you originally thought. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, so what's the end game here? Because I don't understand how this plays out after this. I mean, first of all, again, I would lose my job as a First Amendment professor if I didn't say First Amendment, First Amendment, First Amendment. I mean, I just don't see how uh, a ban here withstands scrutiny in terms of, you know, the complete overbreadth and disproportionality of banning an entire communications platform used fruitfully, educationally, uh, and just for fun for, you know, <laughs> apparently 150 million Americans. But even sort of setting that aside... Um, which we can't, you know, this is not going to be the last China-based app. This is not, we are in an information world now where this is an integrated information environment. What What's the end game here? Are we just going to sort of pick them off one by one? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question because one, the, so have you looked at the bill that's being proposed to give Biden the ability to ban TikTok? Yeah, we talked about the Restrict Act briefly last week. And as structured, do you think it would have First Amendment problems? Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. So I think like one of the challenges, one of the missed opportunities here was this was, what are we really, what is the real problem here? Right. And, and from my perspective, the real problem is the movement of American PII into systems where that data can be accessed by America's adversaries, right? And so we had an opportunity to perhaps frame this in that direction. Instead of framing it as banned TikTok, frame it as controlling American PII and controlling what countries have access to it and, and passing a privacy law that, one, sets federal standards of privacy, which is going to have to happen because every state's passing a privacy law. So we're ending up in this huge, ridiculous mess. We're going to have all these different privacy laws. So we need a federal override privacy law anyway so that we're not living by 50 different standards, which is totally impractical. But in doing that, we also could say, hey, and there are certain countries where American PII, American PII cannot be processed, right? And building up a wall there that makes it that effectively the work TikTok would have to be in compliance with that, would have to go beyond even Project Texas or perhaps do a spin out, would be a very reasonable outcome of that, right? But instead, because we only talk about TikTok, one, it misses all the other companies we've talked about, the WeChats and the Tencents. Alibaba has a cloud product that is used by a bunch of American companies. So like, I don't know of any laws that restrict what kind of data American companies can, can move into Alibaba's cloud. Uh, service infrastructure as a service provider. So, like the the fact that we're missing out on all these other things is is really a missed opportunity. And like you said, like let's say they quote unquote ban it. Like let's say they they rewrite the Restrict Act that is effectively an inter interstate commerce you know thing and doesn't talk about speech or anything. TikTok ends up moving all of their operations to Singapore. What happens next? Right, like. So you have Americans downloading the app that are talking to web services that exist outside of the United States and that it's the exact same output. Okay, they have to go after the app stores. And that seems like something that the government could never really have a direct power over is other than just trying to jawbone Apple and Google into removing TikTok from the app stores. But that would be a hell of a thing for those companies to do. Yeah. 
So as a policy matter, it's an under-inclusive solution that doesn't address the, the the real data problems that we have. As a legal matter, it is flawed and you know highly constitutionally suspect and infirm. And then there's the political issue of like I do not want to face the wrath of all of the teens uh, of this country losing right. their access to their favorite pastime. I think the end game is they all just go and get elected to Congress and reverse everything. So we'll <laughs> we'll see. So maybe we found a solution to the problem. Of young people not voting. It's unfortunate this is the situation that gets them to come out. This is a pro democracy measure. You just need to think bigger. Um, It is. uh, So I I, I think something has to happen. I do think TikTok is a real risk, but I just feel like the way this has been approached, which the Biden administration was, I I think they missed an opportunity because they went down the same path that the Trump administration started, which was only focusing on TikTok and you know, starting down this Project Texas path, which as we discussed before, it's just, you know, the fact that a huge Trump donor happens to get the bid for the contract there uh, was a little bit suspicious from the from the start, but it was never really going to solve it. And, and then we wasted all this time on that when that time could have been spent coming up with like a solution that handles all these other companies. Because uh, this is not, if it takes us three years, every single time we're dealing with like a massive Chinese tech company, that is that is a losing path, right? Like we, we have to have some kind of actual standard here because then that will be reflected in Europe. It'll be reflected in Australia and Japan and New Zealand and all of our allies if we can come up with a good way to handle these adversaries. But ju- just banning TikTok might get followed or not, but it doesn't really create a precedent that I think is super helpful for the Western alliance. Yeah, it's not like the technology is moving particularly fast in this area or anything. Yeah. Um, the, the legal process is really doing very well at keeping up. Okay, speaking of things that are like 2019-2020 redux, Donald Trump being returned to both Facebook and YouTube this week. Uh, YouTube reinstated Trump's account on Friday, almost exactly two years after then-CEO Susan Wojcicki said, uh, we will lift the channel when we determine that the risk of violence has decreased. Now, it's really evident that they have thought long and hard about this, considered the really difficult normative (laughs) theoretical issues that are raised here, the free speech concerns uh, on both sides, because their two-tweet thread uh, explaining this outcome um, really was a comprehensive explanation. Uh, Here is the entirety of their explanation. Uh, Starting today, the Donald J. Trump channel is no longer restricted and can upload new content. We carefully evaluated the continued risk of real-world violence while balancing the chance for voters to hear equally from major political candidates in the run-up to an election. And that is all the reassurance we get. I really feel like I understand their complicated decision process, all of the equities that they thought about, the lessons learned from this difficult and painful process, and what the standards are going to be in the future. Speaking of, they don't have long to work out what those standards are, because meanwhile, uh, over on Truth Social, uh, Trump is posting um, that he's going to be arrested this week and asking people to protest and take our nation back. So it's uh, great timing. 24 hours, 24 hours of this decision, you know, Trump announces that he thinks he's going to get arrested and then calls for violence in the streets in case he he is. It's just, they can't really predict that, right? Like they, but it was clear that at some point this was going to happen. Just the the speed at which this happened is amazing to me. Yeah. (laughs) They had, they had like a day to basket it. And then they're like, oh my God. Oh it's my like God. the writers of this sitcom needed to fit it all into the one 30 minute episode. So it just, uh, right. they came one right. after the next. Right. The writers of America have decided that the season finale is not going to be one of those extra double time is going to fit within the 42 minutes that HBO has allotted them. And we're, we're going to squeeze it all in. Yeah. Well, we're busy people. We don't, we don't have time uh, to, to, to watch a double episode. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's going to be interesting to see how, uh, you know, Facebook, 
uses the new guardrails that it uh, said it put up on Trump's account and how YouTube deals with this, which is, you know, the most sort of, I mean, it wasn't predictable that it would happen within 24 hours, but it was totally predictable that this would happen along some time frame. And so, uh, so yes, let's, let's, I really, I, I, I have faith. I have so much faith that we have learned so much in this period of reflection and it's not just going to be all the same circus all over again. Okay, speaking of circuses, over to our Twitter corner. Excellent. So in our list of non-updates, Musk is still the CEO. Um, There have been no changes to the API. And we still don't have an open source algorithm, although Musk did tweet this week that they will open source all code by March 31st and very candidly said that the algorithm is overly complex and not fully understood internally and providing code transparency will be incredibly embarrassing embarrassing at first, which strikes me as true. Alex, what do you think? Uh, I think those are those are all true. I think you know one of the interesting things that happened the last couple of days is there's a long story uh, about Musk's uh, interference in self-driving cars. Have you did you read that? Not yeah. And I I feel like it's there's somebody had a quote in there which is people did not believe us about how hard it was to do engineering under Musk until. Twitter happened and that now everybody has this incredible retroactive respect for the engineers at at Tesla and SpaceX for getting anything done. And this is exactly the kind of thing like, we're just going to open source our code. One, like the Twitter recommendation algorithm is going to make very little sense without access to all the backend data, right? It's just going to feed all these conspiracy theories because you're going to have a bunch of variables in there and stuff that can't be defined, things that are calculated based upon the current data set that you could come up with a, a theory of like, this is why I'm shadow banned, or this is why my content is pushed down. It's just, it's just not going to end well because you have this incredibly complex system that feeds back on itself. And it's the, the you know, the recommendation algorithm only makes sense in the context of the content that it's looking at. And so, yeah, I mean, it'll be fascinating to see the code. I have a feeling, you know, I think it's safe to put five bucks down on that. We're going to blow past the, the March 31st deadline. That's going to be a, a real, even if, if that's all his engineers were doing, which is would be shocking because they have 40 other things they've been told to do. That would be not a lot of time to get that stuff kind of abstracted out and ready for for sharing. Five bucks. Uh, I, I just don't know if I can risk that kind of uh, that kind of liquidity in 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 today's uh, in today's market. Well, I'm <laughs> I'm not making you bet one Bitcoin. Yeah. I don't know if you saw, but you know, Balaji, uh, the one of the venture capitalists, bet that Bitcoins are going to be worth the U.S. financial system is collapsing, and so he bet somebody one Bitcoin, so like twenty grand, against a million dollars that Bitcoin was going to be worth a million dollars. So like a number of people took his bet. And so that should be the odds of him paying out, I think are not great, which will be interesting people suing based upon a Twitter promise, a Twitter bet. So Excellent. More legal cases look forward to. Another uh, tweet that caught my eye this week from Musk, Alex, was in the months ahead, we will use AI to detect and highlight manipulation of public opinion on this platform. Let's see what the PSYOPs cat drags in. Just curious, you know, as someone that has spent a lot of time and work detecting and highlighting manipulation of public opinion on that platform, did you ever consider just using AI? Like, um, just, yeah, no, but, just go oh buy goodness. some AI, Alex. Come on. <laughs> what yeah. Been doing with your time, right? So you know, it turns out machine learning is really sometimes effective in finding coordinated campaigns, especially when you have access to the data that we don't have on the outside that can be used internally. On uh, you know, not looking at the content, but looking at are there indicators here that these accounts are being run by the same person, right? But that being said, Twitter had that, 
and they had a research coalition to look at it and they had a process by which they did this and they had investigators internally who worked with folks on the outside to try to figure out what's going on and he got rid of all of that. So he should be worried about outside interference because, uh, you know, from what I have seen, people are kind of running rampant on Twitter now, right? Like there's a lot of January, February accounts that are getting a lot of, of play uh, that look very, very, very suspicious. And, uh, and so I think he should be worried about people trying to influence things, but probably should not have fired all the people who do that if, if that's where he really cared about. Yeah, right. It turns out at this point, you still need people to look at the, uh, look at the findings and act upon them, whatever comes up. Okay, and then uh, heading briefly over to our legal corner. <laughs> Two quick updates. So the first is that, as expected, so there's the challenge to the New York hateful conduct uh, law that we have been tracking, which requires social media platforms to post uh, how they're going to deal with hateful conduct. And we had a podcast interview with Eugene Volokh, one of the plaintiffs in that case, challenging the law. The New York Attorney General is appealing the injunction, uh, the decision that preliminarily enjoined that law when uh, Eugene won on, on first instance. So, so that's not surprising. Um, and so it's headed to the Second Circuit. And that'll be that'll be interesting to watch. It is, in a sense, like a blue state version of the Texas and Florida laws that we've seen, where they're just requiring platforms to post a policy and, and say what they're doing and, and offer users uh, a, a, an opportunity to appeal. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see how that plays into this net choice milieu as it, as it heads up. And then the second update is a ruling from the Ninth Circuit in a case called O'Handley, um, finding that there was no First Amendment violation when Twitter restricted posts based on the California Secretary of State and its Office of Elections Cybersecurity flagging those posts through Twitter's partner support portal. So Twitter has its civic election integrity policy um, that it was uh, enforcing in the run-up to the election and, you know, recognizing both that the volume of uh, content on its on its platform was extremely high and it's going to miss things and also that, you know, local uh, outside actors have knowledge uh, of, of what's going on. It granted access to this portal to uh, election officials in at least 38 states, and that included California Secretary of State. None of this was secret. It was all quite public in the run-up to the election that there were these. Um, this was how Twitter was enforcing its policy. And the court said, uh, dismissed an action, a jawboning action uh, by O'Handley, who had his uh, tweet taken down on the basis of being flagged by California, saying that, you know, there, there was no pressure. This was no illegitimate jawboning. This was not coercion. The office was just flagging it to Twitter and saying, hey, could you take a look at this? Um, and then Twitter could do with it whatever it wanted based on its own internal rules. Not a surprising decision. I will say, you know, the decision also didn't really dig into the legitimately extremely difficult issues here around what is appropriate jaw burning, what is appropriate pressure. This was just not the case to do that, perhaps, because there was just no signs of the kinds of pressure that we have seen in other cases. But, you know, this is, I think, going to be the first of many, many kinds of this case. Jaw burning um, is the big issue du jour, I think, in the next few years around content moderation. And so we should do a full episode on it at, at some point. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, like you said, this is going to be a big question of you know, it'll be interesting to see, like, let's say governments did it publicly, right? Let's say Texas, instead of saying you have to take down this stuff that we don't like, just made a list of this is stuff we don't like on Twitter. And then lots of citizens use that to, you know, ask Twitter, take this down to send emails and tweets and stuff. Um, you know, as how public it is, is, is there any like threat behind it and what kind of coercion really varies in different situations? You know, certainly internationally, the amount of coercion is extreme, right? Um, but like you said, in this case, it seems like they had very little power and just had the ability to report. I, I do think it's going to be a fascinating question of what's the line that we should draw here. And it's going to have to be drawn kind of across the, the entire U.S. in one way. I mean, it does really feel like 
the next SCOTUS thing. But it also has this kind of weird historical parallel, which is this feels like, you know, those days in like the, the papers of, uh, you know, famously JFK and Ben Bradley of the Washington Post being friends and like being able to call up your friend to get stuff done, which I think now we look much more negatively on. Right. So it's like the, the overall kind of milieu of what is considered journalistic ethics and what kind of interaction can happen between the gatekeepers and the subjects they're covering is much more regulated now. And I think, you know, how much we want to apply that to platforms is going to be a super open question. And there's going to be a lot of, it's going to, there's going to be some real difficult trade-offs. People really need to understand that there's a bunch of informal stuff of the government saying like, Hey, we think these accounts are related to ISIS. And then you look and they are related to ISIS and you take them down and you look and they're not, and you don't take them down. And if you start to outlaw any kind of cooperation short of a subpoena coming or, you know, an indictment of somebody, then there's a, a huge amount of kind of societally positive things that a lot of people would agree on, especially like in the child safety space. There's a lot of like, Hey, this is, you know, here's a bunch of sketchy accounts. We're going to come get them later, but you might want to take care of it now. A lot of that stuff happens on a regular basis. And if you outlaw any discussion at all between platforms and government, then that kind of stuff's going to go away. Right. Of course, on the other hand, you have like Turkish government saying, Hey, these are terrorists. And it turns out that it's legitimate journalism or it's, you know, one thing when it's uh, child safety and it's another when the Indian government's uh, sending police officers to your office. And clearly whatever we do here is not going to fix Turkey and Israel and India and all these other countries that have internet referral centers and, and who are like, they're, it's well beyond, I mean, job owning, I don't think captures India, right? Where you're like, we're, we're threatening to arrest your executives is not job owning. That's something else. We need, we need another term. Yeah. I mean, although there are, you know, um, threatening legal sanctions of certain kinds. I mean, that happens in, in this country too. And so it's, this is a legitimately very difficult issue and it's, um, and like you said, we're going to have to sort it out. I a hundred percent agree that this is probably going to be heading to, to SCOTUS at some point. And, and in some sense, it's not a new issue. We just have like all of these old cases to do with like morality commissions, sending letters to bookstores saying, hey, we think you've got some indecent stuff. We appreciate your cooperation right. in this matter, stuff like that. But, you know, the, the, the scale, the volume, uh, everything that's happening uh, makes this issue sort of more salient in the platform era and obviously so political right now. Right. And now everybody, I mean, it's effectively, your experience to say these companies, and this has come out in the Twitter files, and I think as we have discussed, this is a legitimate thing people should pay attention to in the Twitter files, is the experience is like every political actor tells the platforms or stuff they don't like. Right. right? Um, some of them are subtle. Some of them are really obvious and dumb. <laughs> and so I, I think, you know, the experience of doing it on that side leads me to believe that you're like, you're going to have to have a standard, but the standard is going to have to probably be around what kind of coercion and power the person has. And honestly, the people who threaten the worst are members of Congress, right? I think with those letters that come out. Uh, but unfortunately, anything SCOTUS does is probably doesn't apply to them because of like speech and debate, right, uh, clause. So uh, they're the people who really need to have a restriction is folks in Congress because they, they just kind of go off the rails uh, in what they're requesting. Yeah, no, I mean, the First Amendment can definitely constrain, you know, like there is a legitimate question. These letters that like Democratic members of Congress send to platforms saying, here are 12 dif- disinformation dozen accounts of what are you doing about them? Um, you know, uh, uh, what level of coercion, what level of like threat does that need to be backed with before that's a First Amendment problem is, you know, something we're going to have to work out. And, you know, it, it, like you said, is it different when it's public? Is it different when it's, you know, Donald Trump's White House sending people saying, hey, take down this Chrissy Teigen tweet? They're all sort of different instances of jawboning and they all raise different issues. 
Before we leave, you know, I think we just have to acknowledge uh, the latest Stanford scandal that really has me reflecting on what it means to to join this institution. Um, It's very, it's been hard to process. It's been, it's been tough, but you know, the Stanford women's basketball team was knocked out in the first round of March Madness on Sunday. And, you know, it's the first top seed women's in the women's tournament uh, to miss the round of 16 since Duke in 2009. So this is, you know, this is, this is hard. This is a tough moment for this institution, (sighs) tough moment for this university. And it's going to take some time. Uh, to, to reflect and process uh, this 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 real scandal. I don't know what to say. I'm just, yeah. Thoughts and prayers. Thanks, Alex. Uh, appreciate it. Um, I do want to give a shout out though to the Farley Dixon, Dickinson Knights, a university I had never heard of, to be honest, defeating number one Purdue uh, in the men's tournament, and to Princeton, who is still in the tournament, who is is making it like making this unbelievable run. So. At least while we mourn uh, on the women's tournament, we can watch some pretty incredible Cinderella stories uh, in the men's tournament. Swings and roundabouts. And with that reprised sports segment for the week, this has been your moderated content weekly update. The show is available at all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and show notes are available at law.stanford.edu forward slash moderated content. This episode wouldn't be possible without the research and editorial assistance of John Perino, policy analyst extraordinaire at the Stanford Institute. Internet Observatory, and it is produced by the wonderful Brian Pelletier. Special thanks also to Justin Fu and Rob Huffman. See you next week.